broadly we both know our pupils experiences will place value and with unitizing and the things that are fundamental to develop and understanding you know they happen much earlier <laughs> sounds really smarmy <laughs>
guiding me through um, the basics of this stuff. Um, so if you ever see her talking about this stuff or writing blogs or whatever about this stuff, I'd highly recommend you check them out because, yeah, she knows her stuff and she's a fantastic writer. So that's what I've been reading this week. I hope you can tell I'm a bit enthused by it. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for? You're right. That is fascinating. And Sarah's been on fire recently. It seems like every week she's got a new blog or thread that's absolutely setting things on fire and really getting to the heart of some really important stuff. So I think, you know, I only wish that we had a season closer than we do so that I could get to spend two, three hours talking to Sarah about education, you know, so hopefully touch wood one day and maybe even as part of a chat before we get to a big interview. I've not been reading, but I've got something that I've been watching that which links to what we're going to explore today. And it's um, a course by Jonathan Hall on the Complete Math CPD College. It's called Place Value, Base 10 and Beyond. And essentially it starts with numbers, numerals and digits. But we work our way through different bases all the way to multiplication and division in multi-base. And in terms of extending my thinking about place value, you know, in the in the Discord, Atul Rana has been running almost like a, a book club, but with this video. So at the start, we would watch maybe five minutes of a video and then Atul would have a task for us. Now we've actually gone beyond where the videos are at the minute. And so we were looking at um, numbers sort of smaller than zero, you know, parts of a whole, I would like to say decimals, but they're not called decimals in every base. So I can't, you know, I want to say radix. And so essentially what we do is we, we spend half an hour together exploring different bases and, you know, and building up our understanding. And we've been doing it for a couple of months now. And actually this course has been central to sort of making me think a little bit more differently, a little bit more deeply about uh, about place value. So yeah, I highly recommend it. Um, and some of the courses on there are free, but I think I pay £84 a year. And for the, the quality of the CPD courses, you know, I'm not trying to sell it, but I think it's, it's, it's a steal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I remember a few, uh, about 12 months ago at my last school, I mentioned to the vice principal that I was looking to buy in some professional development. I thought it'd benefit my understanding of mathematics. And he said, oh, how much is it? And he, he actually laughed at me when I said it was 84 quid. It was like, yeah, we can do that. That's not a problem. So yeah, I know, compared to a lot of stuff, uh, it's obviously a drop in the ocean. But uh, I know there's a lot of good stuff on there, Kieran. Not least, dare I say, <laughs> uh, the bits and pieces I'm sure you've contributed to. Yeah, eight, eight courses as part of the thinking deeply about primary mathematics sort of series. Yeah, I, I, I was quite proud of them, but um, I haven't watched any of them back. I think we might get to those in Discord soon, but we've got quite a while to go and place value before we, before we do that. I, I'd like to explore a slightly new slash different section before we get into place value. And it's basically things that we're up to that people might be interested in. So I know, Chris, that you are planning on delivering a talk maybe a week from when this episode goes out. Where is it and what's it going to be about, Chris? You've sprung this on me, so I'm not really prepared. But yeah, I'm, go I'm going to be speaking at um, Research Ed 
Barks, as I uh, know you are as well. Um, and yeah, it's exciting because it's the first one I've done of, of, of this um, thing. I've done obviously lots of CPD stuff, talks generally in the past, but not a research head, nothing this brief. I mean, obviously 40 minutes. And in this case, I'm gonna be speaking on the subject of reading, unsurprisingly, the idea is to try and communicate something meaningful about the breadth of reading and reading research in the space of 40 minutes. Uh, the talk is going to be called um, 80 words um, that every teacher, oh, sorry, no, hang on, I've changed it. 75 words that every teacher should understand about reading. And the idea is that even if you know loads about reading and reading research, when you, by coming and watching, I hope you'll gain a, uh, an accessible structure that can help you think about how you might support your colleagues to know more about reading and reading research. And equally, if you don't know anything about reading research, this will provide a useful jumping off point. That's the plan. Yeah, mine is about developing an evidence-informed approach to the use of manipulatives in the classroom. I think I started with a Clements and Sarama paper about the use of computer manipulatives. I basically followed the sources for 60, 65 papers. And I've come up with four principles that I think should guide our use of manipulatives because it's not as clear cut as some of the media would have you believe. And so it's, I think it's worth exploring in the depth that I have. And you know, it's definitely not my final word on it, but I think it's really useful. You know, I did it at Maths Conf and there were lots of secondary teachers at the session. So, you know, I know yours is applicable across phases and I think mine is too you know from early years up to up to secondary and but I'm also acutely aware that at the same time you're speaking Bernie Westacott is going to be doing a session on manipulatives as well so you know imagine following, <laughs> following on from that because basically I'll have to have a spy in Bernie's session finding out what he says making sure it doesn't conflict with what I've said and then changing my session so that, I, so that I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, no that makes sense I'm also thinking about you know, I think I've mentioned this to you earlier, buying buying in a body double to kind of perform my one so I can go and watch Bernie instead. I'm I'm in the unfortunate position compared to you that I've I've never actually seen him uh, talk live. Though actually, just a heads up based thinking about what we're going to be talking about later, it might still be available somewhere online. Bernie Westacott did a, a fantastic hour-long talk. I think it was free. I think it was via the... Oxford University Press about place value um, a little while back, a little while back, and it was pretty special. Um, so yeah, that's uh, something to check out as well. Yeah, to, to my knowledge, that that stuff is available on the OUP website as part of their free CPD offering. Certainly was during sort of the the main bit of the pandemic where schools were closed and open and closed. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I think that's the big thing that's happening. And then obviously we've got the Kofi to which, you know, we are very, very grateful to everyone who supports the podcast. You know, we've done some CPD. What have we done? I've done phasing out manipulatives. We know uh, some CPD on that. Subject leadership, almost like an introduction to the very beginning of subject leadership, you know, not just in maths. And then I think the low, how to get the most from thinking deeply about primary mathematics. Those are the three I've stuck on there first. So that, um, you know, I hope it's some extra value, you know, because um You've got the podcast and you've got those sort of CPD that connects into what we're talking about as well. 
focus of this episode is going to be the first of a few, I think, on place value. And obviously, there's no better place to start, Chris, than with what is place value? A place value system is um, a way of denoting value through the position of a set of digits. And what it allows us to do is to represent values, represent amounts with a relatively limited um, number of symbols. So the position of a digit helps to denote its value. So the obvious cases that we're used to with base 10 in a number like 325, we know the value of the two. It isn't just two, it is worth 20 or two tens specifically because of its position. So it's this sense of positional value. Now, if we're only used to these kinds of uh, counting systems, this kind of structure for understanding the uh, amounts, then we might think, well, what other ways of dealing with amounts are there? Well, for example, uh, the, the counting system used in Roman numerals is not in many ways a place value system because we have um, different um, symbols to represent different amounts and they always do a v is five wherever it is placed whereas um, the, the digit five can be worth five or 50 or 500 in a base 10 system so in short the key thing about place value is that it is using the position of a digit to denote value the maya i think they represented their numbers vertically you know and obviously they had sort of glyphs like a, a shell and a dot and, and dashes and so to, to combine to make representations of their numbers and yeah so you know i think we talked about in the number line episode about how the number line is is cultural i think there's a cultural aspect to how number in general is represented you know and you're you're not necessarily going to find it identical but as a species i think it's fair to say we have standardized how we might engage across cultures and that comes down to different bases i think it's almost that next step removed from so we accept that we're going to use place value as, as our main you know the driving force behind a representation number and then within that there are different bases how would you explain bases to someone who'd never heard of them before, Chris? Well, the key idea to get across with a base is its arbitrariness. So we are so accustomed to dealing with numbers through, at least at the very beginning of learning about numbers, through how many tens are there and how many leftovers are there, that we kind of feel that this is the way numbers should be organized and or that they are inherently organized this way when this is a human invention a system that we have chosen as i say it's entirely arbitrary so if i were to explain base uh base 10 as a, as a starting point i would probably say well i want you to imagine that there are 12 counters in front of you now if i've got 12 counters because of the way our number system works, we immediately recognize that that's one group of 10 and two leftovers. But this choice of grouping in tens is arbitrary. And it's this idea of 
grouping that defines the base. I could just as easily count these up in base five by saying that there were two groups of five and two leftovers, in which case, if I were to write that in base five, it would look like two, two. So thinking about base 10, if I looked at that, I'd think, oh, that's 22, which would mean two lots of 10 and two leftovers. But that's not what I'm dealing with when I'm dealing in base five. So the base is effectively the grouping that we use. Naturally, as we get with larger and larger numbers, the way that that base operates has to get more complicated. So in the case of base uh, 10, we have leftovers, which is my way of saying ones. We then have groups of 10. But once we get to 10 lots of 10, in order to represent that using the digits we have available, we then have to say, okay, we need something new where we go. There are 10 lots of 10, which we call 100. And each place that we move across is 10 times larger. Whereas in base five, each place that we move across to the left in this case, we are talking about five times larger. What have I missed there? Does that sound like a fairly coherent explanation of what a base is? It's this idea of grouping, but obviously we then need groups of groups as we get to more complex, larger numbers. I'm very mindful that I want to bring everybody along with us. So do stop me if I go off on a, on a, on a tangent that's unwarranted. But some definitions will talk about a base being the number of potential possibilities that can be represented or the, the numbers can be ways numbers can be represented. So for instance, like you said, in base five and in base 10, you have different options for how those numbers, you know, and it's that, it's that joke about there are one zero types of people, people who understand binary and <laughs> those who don't. You know, I think the, the origin of the, you know, you, alternatively, you could call a base a radix. I think it's really it's really useful to know that because it comes from the Latin, I'm told. You know, it's been about 2,000 years since I spoke Latin to anyone, but it comes from the Latin for root, as in, you know, base two, two is the root. And you're, you're almost looking at, when I look at place value, you're talking about being 10 times larger, 10 times the size. It's an expression of the distance from zero, you know, the magnitude when compared with zero, I think. And I, I don't think we do it necessarily enough at primary, but when I look at 100, I'm looking at the magnitude when, when sort of measuring that distance between it and zero. And when we look at things like decimalization in different bases, you know, it's, fair, it's natural to say, oh, the decimal point, you know, that, that point at which we have parts of a number, you know, numbers, sort of less than zero um, and whole and integers. And it's very easy to, to, to think, to overgeneralize and think, well, that's, uh, that's what it's always called. But actually it would be called a binary point in base two or a ternary point in base three. And, you know, although it's not immediately relevant to us, I think as teachers, if we have an understanding of this, level of place value, then I think we're in a better position to teach it going forward. I don't know what you guys, am I going off on one? I totally agree. I don't think I really understood 
I don't think I understand bases to the extent that you do because of the, the work that you've done with Atoll Rana, you know, multiplication in different bases, etc. I find it difficult enough doing fairly basic arithmetic in other bases. And it, you know, blew my mind a little bit when I first started doing that. But I do think that in order to grasp base 10 and how it works and the fact that it is arbitrary, you do need to understand other bases. You need to understand that that is a choice that was made at some point. Potentially, some people suggest because we have 10 fingers and so that it's quite natural. I mean, if you were going to say, um, how would you express the number 23 without saying anything, you would probably show all 10 fingers, then you do so again, and then you'd show three. It's quite natural to be able to think of that as, oh, there's two tens and three. But it didn't have to be that way. We could just as easily have chosen, say, base five, in which those 12 counters that I talked about could be expressed through one hand's worth of fingers, another hand's worth of fingers, and then two more. So two lots of five and two. So I think what you mentioned there as well, just to really get a grasp of it for those that are struggling to wrap their head around this a little bit, because I remember I did when I first came across this stuff. If we think about, I talked about the, um, as we go up through the places in base 10, it gets 10 times bigger, of course. So we go from ones to tens to hundreds to thousands. And of, as we go in the opposite direction into the parts that are smaller, the, part, the, the, the bits that are below the decimal point, we're looking at tenths, then hundredths, then thousandths. Equally, if we think about, say, base five, we wouldn't be talking about tenths anymore, but below the, it wouldn't be called the decimal point, as you correctly point out, but below the equivalent of the decimal point would be fifths, and then one twenty-fifths, and then one one hundred and twenty-fifths, because instead of getting five times, sorry, ten times smaller going in that direction, we'd be looking at getting five times smaller. Now I've chosen five, but again, that's an arbitrary choice. We could just as easily work in base three base 25, base 60, as certain ancient civilizations like the Babylonians um, tended to do. The key thing is this, uh, this arbitrariness and that when we're first teaching this to children, we, we need to make sure that they're understanding this sense that, of unitizing, the fact that we're making groups and that it just happens to be that in our accounting system, the key one that we deal with is groups of 10. Yeah, funny you should say that about your hands, because I think the way we measure time comes from the Sumerians, and they would use the, the knuckles or even the little, you know, you've got like three little parts to your hand, and they would count those three, and then, that would, and then you know, and I think they would assign a value to it, not necessarily one, and then they would use the other hand to identify, okay, we've got the unit, you know, we've got X number of the unit, whatever, and eventually you would end up with them measured, I think, I'd, I don't want to say base 60 if it's not base 60, but I think that's what they worked in and tonight just before we record this episode me and Atul looked at 3.5 in base three and it it really illuminated you know the power of learning stuff that's just a little bit further beyond your remit because you know thirds in base 10 are notoriously difficult to represent you know, you're better off using fractions rather than decimal fractions because you get this recurring decimal. So we looked at 3.5. And actually, when you have your thirds and your ninths and your 27ths, I was trying to get to a half 
And every time I converted, I just, I was so close, but I couldn't get it. And it was only when I had 12 27s and I was trying to add another 27. So how many 27s? I can't get there. And then I realized that this is a recurring decimal in base three. No, it's not a, it's, it's not a recurring decimal. It's, it's a, um, it's a recur recurring ternary, I think the, the, the correct term would be. So, but it, it was one zero point one 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 forever, and you couldn't you couldn't represent it in base three. And I was, and, and I was like, this is what it feels like to learn something new, to connect it to what you've done. And but it really showed me, you know, it just happened that we happened to be recording about place value tonight. But it couldn't have been, timing couldn't have been any better because it was like scales from my eyes. You know, it, it had been a couple of weeks since the last time I'd spot or made a really big mistake and then learned something from it in this. So, yeah, so I think you're absolutely spot on. It is a fascinating subject. Um, and I think the heart of it as well, what's really interesting about place value and about the idea of working in different bases is that it allows us a better sense of what's going on with arithmetic. I mean, I don't think I really understood the heart of arithmetic or I probably, I'm sure I still don't, but I don't think I was able to explain what arithmetic really was until I started dealing with other bases. It was only when I started working with other bases that I realized that, oh, we're just reorganizing numbers to make so that we can compare them. You know, there's, when we say, for example, um, three lots of four, that is an, a perfectly valid way to describe an amount. It just is three lots of four. We often then go, oh, well, it's 12. Well, it, it, there's nothing answery about 12. It just so happens to be a way to organize a number whereby we say, well, you know, those three lots of four, can you put them in a system that we usually deal with numbers so that I can compare that to other stuff? So three lots of four, when I reorganize that, that's a 10 and two leftovers. And so we, we, start, we can start to see arithmetic, arithmetic as just reorganizing numbers so that we can compare with them um uh, one thing I, I love to do there's a um um an app what do you know what is it maths learning center is that the right name for it the american one i think it's called maths learning center bernie westcott recommends it the early um, maths the early yeah maths it's like a, it's like it, it's the online manipulative stuff and it might be the case that um maths bot does something can do something similar to this but it, it has um 10 frames but you can also set up 100 frames and all sorts of stuff. And one of the things I love about setting up a 100 frame is that you can put in three lots of four, you know, one on top of the other on, in different rows, and then say, okay, what is that? And by moving them down into this 100 frame and kind of like just reorganizing them, you can see, oh, I can see now that three lots of four is a 10 and two. And you start to visualize this idea that arithmetic is, oh, I'm just reorganizing the number so that I can grasp it in a familiar way. And to us, a familiar way to compare numbers and to think about numbers is through base 10. We're so familiar with base 10 that if someone says, you know, 72, we can possibly visualize it. We can possibly get a sense of what that is. Whereas if I said, you know, in base five, the three digits, three, six, four in base five, you'd be like, what is that? How does that even work? Because we're so unfamiliar with it. Um, so, yeah, I... In some ways, I, I think that when we describe place value and arithmetic as two separate things, rather than just arithmetic being an extension 
of place value and understanding place value and playing with place value, I think we, we might sometimes give a false impression. I much rather think of arithmetic as an extension of place value and understanding of it. Yeah, whenever I saw you were going to ask that question about the relationship between arithmetic and place value, I thought, well, isn't arithmetic just a contextual expression of the idea? Because like you said, if I, if I were to work out what three, two, five were in base five, I would need to go, right, five times, there's five units, there are two lots of five, and then there are three lots of 25. I would need to do some arithmetic to work out the value being expressed. The only reason I don't do that in base 10 is because I've been working with base 10 for 30 plus years and it has become internalized. So I can see those representations. And, you know, we talk about the structures of arithmetic and I know Haylock likes the definition where he talks about um, the structures being contexts and, you know, it's the contextualization of, of mathematics that sort of defines the structure, so to speak. And certainly it's what draws the distinction between different types of addition. So I think, you know, when I couldn't see a distinction to be drawn. I think the way we teach, you know, where we, we will typically start with place value and then look at those applications. I think that probably makes sense because, but perhaps we could draw the connections a little bit more firmly with our pupils. But I, I think, you know, having spent months, you know, we've, we've spent 30 minutes uh, on a Wednesday night every week for months just going through this one course really slowly. I think you would need a lot of space in the curriculum to go into base and to go into multi-base at primary. I think it's possible. But to go into it the way it deserves to be gone into, we would need to almost start from scratch and make it the priority. And, and then reconsider how we taught place value in general. I think there's some room, even in a limited sense, within our current national curriculum to highlight the idea of different bases right from the very beginning. I mean, that, that might sound, given how complicated it might, the stuff we've described so far might sound if you're not that familiar with this aspect of mathematics. I do think it's possible perhaps to, to go there. And in particular, what I mean is that if at the very beginning of dealing with numbers, when we're introducing children to the idea of numbers greater than 10 or 10 or greater, if we start by saying, oh, how many groups of two can we make here and how many ones or how many leftovers are there? And you do that with a, a pile of seven. How many groups of three can we make with and, and, and how many leftover? We do that a few times with different groups, making sure that children are obviously already aware, perhaps can supertize with those into those groups once we then go okay we're now going to be focusing for a while on a particular number which is 10 we're going to be in particular looking at grouping things into sets of 10 with a cup with some leftovers and that's how we introduce the idea of numbers greater than 10 we start saying we can write this amount here uh, here where you've got maybe 13 counters and say we can write this as 110 and three ones and present it like that so that there's this at least initial introduction to the key idea of unitizing the key idea that we're saying groups and then ones or groups and leftovers i think that might be a way just to, to hint at it to begin with and then maybe in, by emphasizing this idea this 
hinting at this idea of arbitrariness, then later on in the curriculum, when we start to say, well, you know, for years, we've been talking about putting things into groups of 10 and then some ones. Let's explore today what numbers might look like if instead we were putting things into groups of five, for example. And yes, I absolutely agree. There's certainly value to be had in going deep into an understanding of different bases. But even if we don't have the time or the understanding of it to, to go there, I think there's like a limited version that can be part of um, the everyday maths curriculum. Let's change it a little bit then, right? Because the situation you're describing requires quite a skillful and knowledgeable teacher, I would posit. So in this age of almost outlining exactly what beginning teachers and student teachers should learn about during their time, do you think we could overcome a lot of the subject knowledge issues we face with our least experienced teachers or that our least experienced teachers face themselves by focusing heavily early on in teacher training in a course that explored multi-base to the depths to which we're sort of almost touching on in this interview, in this chat? Do you think that would alleviate a lot of the issues that teachers have when it comes to subject knowledge further down the line? Absolutely, 100%. I, I think it's, yeah, it's gonna sound a bit out there, particularly, as I say, if you're not familiar with different bases, but actually, even on the basics, even half an hour to an hour of talking about different bases and um, operating with them, just so you have that realization, that key realization that um, there are other bases than base 10 and that base 10 is an arbitrary choice that we've made. I think that just illuminates so much of what we're talking about. As we say, it illuminates this idea that arithmetic is merely an extension of our understanding of, in this case, base 10, of place value more generally. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think you really grasp this stuff. You do grasp this stuff well enough to teach it, but I think by grasping it a little bit more, going into this extra detail, I think it's, um, it has to advantage teaching. I'd also say that I don't even think that this is something that is, once you're familiar with it, it doesn't feel like it's hugely challenging. It doesn't feel to me like, oh, wow, if I'd done A-level maths, that's where this would have been. You, Once you'd understand it, you think, oh, okay, this should have been in my, this is what I should have learned in primary mathematics. It doesn't feel unbelievably complicated. It just feels like something obvious that should have been included in our understanding of what counting is and what arithmetic is as well of course i imagine it's probably like learning italian if you're spanish it's slightly different but when you get under the skin of it it's very very similar and you're applying lots of the same principles i don't know obviously i'm not a spanish person who has learned italian so i can't imagine but because english has no relatives close enough for that comparison to be made I can only hypothesize. I don't know. I, th I think there's a bit of, again, it's probably a bit of a reach, but I think there's potentially a bit of variation theory in here as well, because if you know 
you know, if you're introduced to what a dog is and you meet, you see one dog, yeah, you've got an idea of what dogs are, but it's when you see a variety and you see different ones and perhaps things that aren't that you get a sense of, you know, a better, you know, grasp on this concept. Equally, if you've only ever dealt with base 10, you don't even realize that this is an arbitrary choice, then how do you recognize really what base 10 is? At the moment, for most teachers, I would imagine, who haven't looked at other bases, base 10 is the, the water in which they swim. So they've, they can't really understand it itself because it's just how they've always dealt with numbers. And getting outside that for a moment allows you to perceive it a bit better. I would imagine it certainly did for me. That's why we end up with challenge being equated with larger numbers rather than different bases. You know, and going back to what Mark McCord says about the infinite depth of mathematics, you know, there's no better example than when he teaches uh, this just really interesting generalization with them. Um, is, it, is it 1089? Is a shorthand for this investigation? I know on enrichmaths.org, they call it subtraction surprise. But essentially, you end up making these generalizations where you, you're working in base 10, you're working in base 8, and then you're working with, uh, with letters too, and, and you see how the, how, why it works the way it works. And um, yeah, I think it, it's probably a light bulb moment for most people when they see what's really possible with place value compared with you know, how we may have been encouraged prior to the introduction of the 2014 national curriculum to accelerate as close to the tens of millions as we possibly could. But I think I've said before in the podcast, and I've certainly said to everybody who listen in real life, humans don't understand quantities greater than those they can physically experience. You know, like we don't understand time greater than our own lifespan. And so when we think about a thousand people, I'm not sure we really can distinguish between a thousand people and a hundred people, not to any great level of accuracy. And then when we look at 10,000 years and 1,000 years, certainly to me, they feel just as far away. And so I think, you know, it's about, you know, where our priorities are. And it certainly shouldn't be looking at tens of millions or billions because, you know, when, when you talk about the wealth of people who have trillions of dollars, I don't know what that means. That seems just as rich as someone who's got a couple of hundred thousand pounds in the bank. You know, I really don't, you know, I don't get it. It could just be me. I could just not understand numbers to the same depth as everybody else. But, um, I, you know, that combining those two bits together, I think sort of sets your priorities for place value in the classroom. You know, it's about how rich can this be as opposed to how great the magnitude can be. Yeah, and I, I think the um, the zenith of that negative idea is um, when we start getting children to use written methods for six or seven digit numbers. And you think, why? Why on earth are we getting children to add or subtract, or subtract with six or seven digit numbers? Kind of the point of understanding place value to this extent so that the, you can then use um, certain procedures to deal with arithmetic is that you then recognize, oh, it, it works with any set of numbers and uh, uh, or any size of number and then saying that you have to 
okay, so let's take that up to six or seven digits. Well, yeah, I don't really see the point in spending a huge amount of time on that. I think generally also I'm a bit of a, a bit radical, what I might say when it comes to um, written methods and their purpose in the curriculum. I think because of the nature of our modern world, I think the only real purpose behind over the longer term behind um, written methods is to better understand our number system and how to deal with it. That's it. I mean, if if you think that anyone out there is on a day by day basis, multiplying four digit numbers by two digit numbers on a piece of paper, then you've lost it. The only reason to deal with that is so that you get a better grasp of the um, distributive property. You know, that's that's why you deal with that. So you start to see how that works. Um, yeah, so it's. I think it's another way in which place value and arithmetic are connected in that when we when we talk about written methods, written arithmetic in the back of our mind should be, I am doing this to help children grasp what we've described so far as place value, in particular, in this case, base 10, and then ideally how that will apply to other bases. So we've talked a lot about different bases and place value, thinking about reception and then year one, year two. What does that look like there? I mean, when we're talking about reception, I think there are three key principles of counting that lead to the rest of mathematics. One-to-one -one correspondence, stable order, and cardinality. I think once you have those three, those would be the first three things I try to teach any pupil or try to help pupils realize in reception. Once you get those three, you can then begin to supertize with small numbers. I know the supertizing sort of with three objects seems to happen naturally, you know, maybe preschool slightly earlier, you know, when the kids are three years old. But certainly I'm thinking, what do I want pupils to be able to understand when, as they go through reception? I think those three allow you to supertize, they allow you to draw comparisons later on, and then you can start going into almost the, the sequence that's formulated within the primary national curriculum. You know, I think, you know, because in reception, you're almost circling within the one year, you are circling around the same ideas, but with increasingly larger numbers so for instance you're supertizing within five initially you know perhaps perceptual supertizing within five perceptual supertizing within seven conceptual supertizing within five seven ten and then you're probably i think into year one or the mathematics that six and seven year olds might encounter i'm just this is just me spitballing you know, I have spent time thinking about this sequence recently, but, you know, I, I, it's beyond me to remember everything that I have sort of written down. And then I think, you know, I, I think I've definitely spoken about it before. My year one and year two is, is very, very similar to that process where you've got the same big mathematical ideas, but you're revisiting them with slightly larger numbers. And for me, it'd probably be within within 10, within 20, within 40, and then maybe within 100 when you're in year two. But I do think there's time for that in year three. 
And so that's how I would start the journey. Because I think if you've got those principles of counting and then are developing an awareness and a sense of number, and obviously I haven't included absolutely everything that would count towards that sense of number, that's where you get a rich understanding of everything that comes later. I think something I've already mentioned and that you implicitly hit upon is the idea of unitizing, the idea that we can put things into groups and recognize them then as a, a single thing. I mean, I think a key moment in mathematical development is when children see three or four or five or two, whatever it is, and then they say, that is not just five objects, but we can think of it as a five. And I think the value is really, sorry, the, um, the, the words are really important there. The, the use in particular of the, um, of the indefinite article there is so meaningful because the difference between five and a five or a group of five is this process of saying that set of things is now, or sorry, that um, selection of things is now a set. It's a group that I can deal with. Um, and I think I would want to do lots of work that um, made that really visually clear. So if we were saying um, bears in baskets or counters in cups or whatever it might be, lots of work that involved, let's put three in here and three in here and three in here. Let's put two in here and two. Lots of work involving um, physically grouping things as a way of understanding this idea of sets, this idea of unitizing, um, I think that's foundational um, in reception. I, th I think you're absolutely on the money when you're talking about the, the power and the importance of supertizing in this as well. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of aspects to this. Obviously, there's just the importance of supertizing itself for understanding number and for dealing with arithmetic and for you know, being able to recognize that two and three is five quite quickly and quite visually because you can perceptually supertize two and three and five is really valuable. But also in practical terms, down the line, when we start to deal with 10 frames, in particular full 10 frames and then some leftovers, and then even further down the line, when we start to deal with um, Dean's, Dinesh, I never know how to pronounce it. Let's go with Dean's. We'll stick with Dean's. Um, but with, with Dean's blocks, the difference between a child who can look at 34 in Dean's and go, well, there's three tens, there's four ones, it's 34, compared to a child that perhaps, because they've not had those experiences with supertizing, go one, two, three tens and one, two, three, four ones, they have to count them up. I think that is a real impediment over the longer term to their use of manipulative. So that is going to support the understanding of place value. So I think supertizing has that kind of practical role to play. Just alongside that, I'm just thinking about the amount of times I've seen teachers teaching place value in, say, year two, and they show 38 with deans um, under a visualizer, and the three tens are nicely lined up. And then the eight is just a collection, just a random collection. And I say, well, we've got three tens. And then, so what have we got here, everyone? And the kids are desperately trying to work out. And then you see a teacher in comparison who organizes the, the ones that are there into either a, in a pairwise structure that children will have experienced in a 10 frame 
or a five and a bit structure. So there's five and three more so that they're, they're organized. The difference between the learning for children when the teacher is taking back care in how they use Dean's blocks is, yeah, it, it's a massive difference because they can, going back to what you've described before, they can conceptually supertize that so much more easily. So, well, there's three tens, there's eight ones, it's 38 without having to kind of count up. So yeah, that was a long way around to say that unitizing and obviously the power of supertizing is what I would um, emphasize in what you'd already said. I won't say add because you'd already gone there. Yeah, I mean, it was thanks to Andrew Jeffrey that I was introduced to the, the idea that was, that, you know, the resources were created by Zoltan Dinesh, but calling them Dinesh equipment is potentially the, the equivalent of ordering two cappuccini when you go when you're going to Costa Coffee or wherever you happen to buy your coffee from, you know you don't you feel like a bit of a fool saying it, even though it's correct. Or when you ask for an agendum, though I have heard that agendum has now become defunct. But technically speaking, an agenda was just multiple, you know, points. But perhaps it's multiple points of order, and that's why it's an agenda rather than agenda. But you know, there are lots of those examples in outside of mathematics. But I think the way around it is to refer to them as base 10 equipment because they look they're the same equipment has a base five equivalent and that would be base five equipment so if you go on math spot johnny has it in many many bases it looks the same but obviously your square isn't going to be a square of 100 ones it's going to be a square of what 25 ones and so i think referring to it as the base and then equipment is an easy way around that. But I know it, it's a it's a point of pedantry, you know, the type of pedantry that you and I are both famous for and what our loyal listeners <laughs> tune in for every week. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, while someone might call us out and say, well, get his name right, that's a bit unfair, I would imagine that Zoltan Dinesh, and again, I've probably pronounced it wrong still, would at heart, um, be most interested in us trying to communicate as clearly as we can about the ideas of mathematics. And most teachers will recognize the word deans and will probably um, not quite recognize um, Ginesh. So um, I, I hope that we could be forgiven on that count. Point. And um, you know, when you're talking about the extensions, I think nothing gets past. The ridiculous nature of the English language and its relationship with the names we've given to the numbers than thinking about 12 as 110 and 2 and 11 as 110 and 1. You know, it was whenever I was doing the Tudor videos and I had to teach that. And I sat down and I thought, what's the best way to get this across? And it's it's through that sort of extension of unitizing, you know, because oh yeah, we'll have some German numbers, we'll have some slightly Romance language numbers, you know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take a few from this box and a few from that box and we'll, we'll come up with them. Um, something that's only really slightly less ridiculous than how the French language expresses numbers greater than 60. So, yeah, so I, I yeah, I, you, you can't overstate the extensions of what you're, you're saying there. It, it goes the whole way through, I think. On that, then, um, a question. I remember about 12 months ago, maybe a bit more, I saw Bernie Westercott talking about um, the value potentially of supporting children to understand numbers by at the beginning in, as well as or instead of describing numbers as 11 12 13 14 
using a system that maybe more closely ma uh, matches what happens in um, Mandarin, where you say 10, 10, 1, 10, 2, 10, 3, in order to make explicit what's going on there. I mean, it is inc incredibly unfortunate that we don't highlight that within the words that we use. Do you think potentially there is value in that? I mean, you're bound to say yes, because who would want to disagree with Bernie Westacott? But um, if, if you, on the assumption you do think there's value there, would you be tempted to say, well, let's keep 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, et cetera, to one side. And once children are quite comfortable with these numbers, we can start to say, and these are their names, because there's an equivalent here when it comes to the learning of uh, when children learn to read. There are certain phonics programs that as part of their instruction will avoid using letter names until later on. You know, some kids will come to school knowing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, et cetera. But the teachers won't use those letter names because they're aware that they, they can potentially get in the way of instruction. They'll get in the way of children's spelling. They'll get in the way of children's understanding. So where do you stand on that, this, this idea of potentially using numbers in that way? Yeah, I think Bernie uses Welsh as an example. I mean, I certainly know that in Ireland, um, a he and jig would be 11 and a he and is also one. So it'd be 110. And a da yeg, two ten would be, and then three jeg, um, kahar jeg, kuri jeg, so on. So they have a similar system to Welsh, which appears to be similar to Mandarin, where they where they've got that sort of very clear naming of the relationship between the units and then the group of ten. When I'm teaching fractions, certainly when I was talking to my seven-year-old about fractions. Instead of giving them the fraction names, I was talking about this is one of two parts, which is again how they express it in Mandarin. The direct translation for a third would be wouldn't be a third; it'd be one of three parts, or something along those lines. And you, which basically is that's what exactly what it is. It's describing really clearly, you know. And you know, we talk about clarity in mathematics and clarity in instruction, clarity of language. How important are the number names? to the mathematics we experience in reception, nursery, year one and year two. I would argue not very important at all. And certainly I'm always telling my teachers to remove the secretarial skills from the mathematics in year one because our children don't come to school to learn knowing how to read and write. So we got to strip that back and think fundamentally about the mathematics. And if we think about the list that we explored there, you know, I said, okay, this is the journey I would go on Knowing the names of the numbers beyond 10 certainly wasn't something that I would prioritize. You know, it, it's nice to know them, but mathematically speaking, like you say, with phonics, you can get by. And the first time I'd experienced that with phonics was my own children were learning to read. But then I saw how quickly they learned to read. And I was like, wow, this is, this, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, and again, I go back to how I only thought I knew how to teach phonics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd be brave enough as of yet to say to a school of teachers as a maths lead, you know what, we're going to try this. We're going to um, embed both of these ways of dealing with numbers. We're going to talk about 11 as 10, 1, 10, 2, 10, 3. I guess you can go further than that and start talking about 20 and say, when you're dealing with that, say, well, this is two tens, one, two tens, two, two tens, three. I think thinking about that, those as parallel ways of understanding number one which makes the structure explicit 
and one that is the annoying name with all of its inherent etymology might be a way to go. I, I certainly, I, I would certainly say though that there is a, there is value in being willing to say we can think of this number, of course, you know, twenty five. We know this is two tens and five or two tens five, however you want to consistently describe that. That's probably the pragmatic solution. You know, it's okay us suggesting all these things that we would do with the, with the curriculum and stuff. You know, could you imagine what that curriculum will look like if we ever do get in a position where we get to decide what it looks like? <laughs> you know, but I think in, in reality, it's a lot like, you know, when you prioritize something over another thing, but you want to show them in tandem and you say, okay, this, this is what we're focusing on, but it also looks like this. You know, say you were working with base 10 equipment, but you also had the formal written algorithm written beside it because you were drawing comparisons and parallels between what was happening. You know, I, th I think it's like that. You know, we can say what we think, but pragmatically speaking, it's probably, a, you know, show both and then see what happens from there. Yeah, and I think, I think there's a strong argument to be made that constantly referring to this underlying structure of numbers is a really wonderful way to drip feed an understanding of place value. So, you know, kids are counting up and they say, oh, what number did we get to? We got to 27. And don't forget, everyone, we can think of this as two tens and seven ones, because that's what, you know, that, that just constant reminder of, well, what is 27? What is 36? What is 64? Well, it's this many groups of 10, this many ones. Yeah, I think that's um, a massive component of making sure that children understand place value. I could definitely go on for a long time, Chris, but I think now it feels like a good place to pause before we move into perhaps a more detailed description of how things are enacted in the classroom. I think if we separate it into you know, this, this conversation about place value, what it is, its essence, and then we can shift our attention next time to the practicalities of the classroom. I think that would be really useful for listeners. And I think it makes sense in terms of avoiding four-hour episodes on uh, on niche mathematical subjects. I think all that's left to say is, if you haven't already, check out Chris's appearance on Mind the Gap with Emma Turner and Tom Sherrington. I listened to it as soon as it came out. It was it came up on my YouTube recommendations, and forty-three minutes have not gone as quickly when listening to something. It was, it was thoroughly enjoyable from start to finish. So check that out if you haven't already. Thank you very much, Christopher, for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Kieran. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>